What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is presented by my delightful and important and vital Patreon members where you can become a member by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Again, that's patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Become a member, make a $5 a month donation. It's like a cup of coffee a month, just like a, any other subscription to the New York Times, the New York Post, Slate Magazine, the Chase Thomas Podcast we're all one and the same. That's what people are saying. And you can support the show by doing that today. It would be great in continuing to put out as much content as I am. Because guess what? I'm doing seven pods a week, sometimes more. We are doing interviews with pro wrestlers, former NBA players, NBA GMs, coaches, college coaches, college ADs. We are doing movie reviews on Sundays uh, that you can find with Musee and Thomas. Every single Sunday, we're reviewing a different movie. Uh, Monday through Friday, we're getting NBA, NFL, college football, Major League Baseball, team beat writers. You're getting pro wrestling analysis. You're getting the sports reporters. Reporters. What is it? I don't even know. America's favorite sports writers? I think that's what we're calling it. On Friday with some of the best sports writers and sports thinkers on the internet today. We are doing all this every single day. New content every day. You know what else I'm doing every day? I'm writing every day. You can read my Monday uh, Atlanta sports column. That comes out every Monday. On Tuesdays, you can read my Monday Night Raw recap. On Wednesday, you can read my Impact Wrestling recap. On Thursday, you can read... Hold on, let me check my notes here. I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'll come back to it. On Friday, the Friday mailbag. Um... Oh, I know what I'm doing on Thursday. We're doing the AEW Dynamite review. On Friday, we're doing the Nobody Asked Mailbag, like I said. Maybe that'll turn into an actual mailbag. If you would like to send uh, those, you can do so by going to emailing me at chasemuspodcast at gmail.com. Um, you can read my SmackDown recaps on Saturday morning. You can read my newsletter that goes out every Saturday morning. We'll eventually have a tiny letter or Substack stack uh, once I get that pesky P.O. box, but I will update you all soon and then uh sunday volunteers yeah every saturday guess who's in knoxville me guess who'll be covering tennessee football tennessee basketball for the next several years maybe ever me falls go go read my stuff um you can read all of it at chase thomas podcast.com i would highly encourage you to check it out chase thomas podcast.com slash page hyphen 11 where you can read all my stuff get access to all of my episodes all that good stuff Go to Apple, subscribe there, leave me five stars, leave a review, help the show continue to grow and move into that top 200 permanently on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Spotify, tell a friend, share the show. This intro is three minutes long. That's entirely too long for an intro. Too long. And I just did a long pause. I don't know why. All right, Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we're back on a post game four Lakers defensive shutdown 
of the Miami Heat. It looks like the Lakers are on their way to their 12th NBA title. Uh, I am joined by first-timer across the pond, as uh, people say. Tom West, Tom, good afternoon or good evening. I think you're five hours ahead. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks, man. Thanks for me on. Um, so how does this work for you being, a, being, do you stay up super late or do you get up super early to watch the games? <laughs> I, I mean, it depends. I mean, right now in the finals, it's tricky because most of the games are starting about 2am here. So it's kind of too late. I'll get basically no sleep before I have to get up for work. So right now I get up early for work, get on league pass, watch the games, and then I can sort of get up to speed. Uh, and that's generally what I do through the regular season. I normally get up hour or so extra early before work get in a game maybe do a little writing if i can and that's generally the system uh yeah so it's it's not ideal but yeah you learn to adapt when uh, the time difference is an issue <laughs> i understand like that uh yeah I, I i always wonder about like just fans um all over the world because the nba is such a global brand now um how they all do it how what, how they watch it when they watch it things like that um but i'm Kind of the same way. I I really love starting my day watching tape from the night before. It's actually really nice. Yeah, no, I do. I do enjoy it. The only thing with the playoffs in particular is just making sure you avoid spoilers. Because yes. I don't. I don't mind watching a game when I know the score, but it's it's just much better when you don't know what's going to happen. Um. So yeah, as long as I just sort of shut away my phone for like an hour, hour and a <laughs> half, while I get through a game, then it's all good. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So I want to talk about these games, or this game, excuse me. And in your estimation, Tom, how did uh, the Lakers go up three to one? I mean, obviously the injuries with Bam and Drogic are huge. Um, And it's a shame we've not got to see the Heat at full strength. I mean, I thought the Lakers were going to win this series anyway. I picked them in seven games, so I thought it was going to be super close. But yeah, it's a shame we've not seen the Heat at full strength. So obviously that swings things. AD... Except for a bad game three, he's been great still. I mean, he's been having a dominant postseason. Um, and him and LeBron sort of really ramped things up in the second half of game four. Um, you know, AD was sharper on defense again. I think some of his rotations and were a bit off in game three. He wasn't as aggressive. That sort of changed to close out game four. Um, obviously, LeBron has been really good, except, you know, some of his turnover issues. And I just think that their defense in particular has been has been really impressive. I mean, they've worked so hard all season on that end of the floor you know they've really locked in their team defense is really great and they've just sort of maintained that um i mean the heat have been playing great defense too but i think the lakers that's sort of been one of their big factors along with you know lebron and ad obviously sort of leading the way yeah i think uh, kirk goldsbury has a really good piece on espn.com today um talking about uh the lakers putting ad on jimmy and that was a change and like it's almost not fair sometimes with the way that the Lakers can just adapt and evolve and throw different things at different people. And AD being this just juggernaut, obviously he had, and we'll get to this, the shot for him. Um, he finally, ha- he had his memorable shot, three-point shot, kind of like Durant from a couple of years ago, kind of like the Kyrie shot of just to put them up nine last night that just sealed the game. And I just thought it was interesting that the Lakers trusted AD enough to be able to handle Jimmy because Jimmy just crushed them so much and scoring 40 on 20 shots in game three. And he did not do that. Obviously he was a lot more frustrated. He did not get the same kind of looks he was getting inside that he got uh, in game three. And based on tracking data, almost every single shot, I believe except for two for Jimmy 
were contested by either AD or LeBron. And I think Frank Vogel deserves a lot of credit for putting AD on Jimmy Butler in this critical game and making sure that what happened in game three could not happen in game four because that was their only option. The Heat being without Dragic, being with a limited BAM, having to play Kendrick Nunn, like they were already underhanded. And you saw that in the half court game where Tyler Hero was having to make these crazy, crazy looks to keep them in the game. And Jake Crowder had a big three at one point. But by and large, this team did not have the half court um, just firepower that they needed with Dragic in the pick and roll to attack and attack and attack like they just it it was always going to be ugly and difficult for them to be able to keep up and the lakers keeping the heat under 100 in this game was huge and the lakers just someone wrote this and i forgot who it was but just like this is not the showtime lakers this is just bully ball and their defense has always Mm -hmm. been their calling card and they just it it makes sense that for them to go up 3-1 in the nba finals uh for them to do it in this fashion of just like no, we're just going to shut down this thing that uh, y'all did in game three to make it seem like the series might be a possibility for you. Uh, no, that's that's over. We're going to go ahead and put our two best players <laughs> in the NBA uh, on you. This this is done. It was cute for a game, but this is over. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's it. I mean, you mentioned Frank Vogel, and I think it's so easy for people to just not credit LeBron's coaches because they have LeBron on their team. And, you know, He's the most important factor, but I think it's easy to disregard his coaches. But yeah, Vogel's made some really good adjustments. Like you mentioned, AD on Butler was the big one that really swung things. Like just sending him, you know, his size at the rim. You know, I mentioned his rim protection was better in game four. Like that just bothers Butler. And just sending him way under screens against Butler and daring him to shoot is exactly, you know, the best way to play Jimmy. Um, I think he took three threes, missed them. Uh, in game four, you know, he's just not comfortable from there. And if you can sort of force him into those kind of shots, get back to the rim. Um, the Lakers do a great job of, you know, switching out and recovering um, and dropping under on him. It's just the best way to play him. And they did a really good job there. Um, and I think, you know, Vogel as well, keeping with AD in the second half, not going back to Dwight, you know, being a bit more small, a bit more mobile while maintaining size because AD still so big and he can do everything on defense. And just worked perfectly for them. And, you know, they're really good chasing guys off screens, um, which is obviously really big against Miami in particular with Harrow and, you know, Duncan Robinson in particular, how they use those guys with dribble handoffs and that kind of thing. They can just play them really well. And, yeah, they deserve a lot of credit for their team defense, which has, yeah, been impressive all season, like you said. And, you know, it's been outstanding again this series. Butler went 3 of 12 in his final 12 shots. um, And with Davis on him, he was 1 for 7. Like, it's just that was the game. We can basketball is a game of yeah. runs and it's complicated and all that, but like ultimately this game came down to AD on Butler and that ended the series. And I mean, honestly, if you're the Heat, you're just like, well, what are we supposed to do? We we lost Dragic. <laughs> Bam only had one assist, I believe, in this game. He was just not his mm. Draymondy self here, and it's just clear that he's just not right. But he deserves credit for trying to gut it out. But um, that that's it. Like if you're the Heat, if you're Spo. You're just like, well, I, I don't know what else I could. I can't. Uh, there's no tactical way I can get around this. Putting AD on our best player is just like, what do we even do here? And when AD's hitting those threes at the top of the key, especially the one that um, iced it here, um, it's pretty wild. And then this stat I thought was pretty interesting. The the Lakers are 56-0 and this season after leading after the third quarter. That's uh, 
Yeah, I think they mentioned that in the broadcast, didn't they? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy impressive. Like, you'd think even just like a two-point lead after the third, they might have lost some games like that. But yeah, that's pretty pretty wild stuff. <laughs> I, I, I was stunned. And I just, that's like that whole, it's clear this is a veteran team, right? Like, that's one of those where, oh, they have two of the five best players in basketball. And they also just only play veterans all across the board. It's just veterans. And then KCP, who... I don't know how you feel about KCP as a basketball player, but that three in the corner was dirty um, off the Jimmy miss in the corner. And then LeBron pushes, finds KCP in the corner. And that just, that, that, that really hurt. And KCP was hitting a lot of shots. I think he's like, I think he is right behind Kobe as the uh, most threes in a, in like a Lakers playoff run ever. I think he's at like 40 or something. Like it's, it's pretty wild, but he's been an integral part to this team and it's just mm. rondo making great passes great plays like it's just all their vets were clicking on all cylinders yeah. and the heat are relying on a 20 year old to hit crazy one foot <laughs> shots and a guy who was in the g league last year to be able to free himself for one second to get off a, a good look from a three and it's just it's not gonna happen and I uh, I don't know. I think that's part of the reason the Lakers have been so good at maintaining these leads is and protecting these leads is that like, hey, they only play vets and then they have two of the five best players in basketball. Turns out that's a recipe for holding leads and just taking care of your business. Exactly. <laughs> and like KCP had that massive drive on Duncan Robinson as well. Like he, yeah, he had those two plays with that and the three that were huge. Yeah, Rondo's been good. Like I've not been a big Rondo fan in the past. You know, he's not had great too many great seasons recently but he's been good for them um you know his defense has been better his playmaking is good um and it, yeah it's just so hard to counter the ad on butler just like you said i mean they can do some things like i think you know butler was setting a lot more screens and rolling um as the game went on and that can sort of you know he can get behind the defense a little bit like that and you know he called for some handoffs which worked well you know if his defenders dropping back butler's a good screen setter he can screen you know for robinson or hero then when they come off you know, with AD dropping back, they can get some good looks, but there's just not much you can do if you're sort of reducing Butler's impact that way. And yeah, all their vets, their defense stepping up, like it's it's hard to compete with them. And then when you've got LeBron and AD at the top, it's, yeah, it's really hard. And without Drogic, you know, leaving you with Kendrick Nunn minutes and that kind of thing, it's just, it's just tough. Kendrick Nunn is not good. What does he do? Like this was something I was writing down and I've written down a lot this season where people were like, oh, Kendrick Nunn's interesting. And I'm like, he's not good at anything. He's, I guess, like best case scenario, he's like Reggie Jackson or it's like he'll never be a great scorer. He's like a good backup point guard. He can at least semi run a second unit, but he's just playing in critical moments in the finals. And it's just like, no, this it's just not the same. And the Heat losing their leading scorer. We, you just forget that Dragic was their leading scorer because it doesn't sound right. Yeah. Being the sixth man and everything. Such good playoffs. But mm. none is just not that guy. None can't shoot. He can't do anything. His Every look he was taking, you're like, oh, like it. No, it was just bad. Yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, Harrow, Harrow did a little bit of over dribbling as well, I think. But yeah, none is just, yeah, he's not a great scorer. He's not a great playmaker. And, yeah, the finals are just too much, like, against the Lakers' defense. Like, he can get you some points in the regular season, but, yeah, this is sort of, this is too much for him. Like, Jogic has been so good in the playoffs, um, and, you know, he was trying so hard to play yesterday, wasn't he? So it's such a shame he can't play, because um, he's been so good, and he's the sort of crafty, ball handler, driver, shooter, playmaker that would be perfect for them right now, you know, especially with AD putting more pressure on Butler, but... 
it's just the way things are. It's still been a fun series, though. Like the Heat have been so competitive, and their and their defensive game plan has been great too. Um, you know, I think they're doing pretty much all they can against LeBron, but it, yeah, they just don't quite have enough. Do you think we'll remember the Davis shot from last night? I think so. Yeah, I mean, especially if he wins Finals MVP, mm-hmm. if he if he can win that, I think that's going to be one of his sort of I'm highlight moments. It's going to be KCP. <laughs> a game four turned it around a sort of like Iguodala type mm. <laughs> situation yeah I don't know I mean yeah I'm sure it's going to be LeBron or AD but it'll be interesting to see how the rest plays out though because I still think it could kind of go either way like I don't think it's set in stone who's going to win it yet is there any hope for the Heat what adjustments do you think they can make to at least extend this series another game or two I'm I'm not sure how much I can suggest. I mean, like I mentioned some of the stuff with Butler, just, you know, him screening and rolling a little bit more, um, the way they can use some handoffs and things. I think their defense has been good. Um, like they were doing a really good job of like, you know, switching out onto LeBron, then recovering. You know, it's, it's hard for them to avoid those mismatches because um, they were doing, the Lakers were doing so much, you know, mismatch hunting with LeBron in pick and roll, just trying to get on Hero or Robinson. Um, and the Heat were often doing a pretty good job of recovering and, you know, scrum switching and getting back to their main assignments. But, you know, things would break down at the end of plays or LeBron was just too good anyway. Davis would hit shots. Like, I, I'm not sure there's really anything they can realistically do to get back into it. I mean, the three-point shooting has cooled down a little bit. I still think, you know, that could turn a game or two for them if they just get a bit hotter again. Um, they've been a bit cooler than normal there, but... Yeah, I'm not sure how much they can swing things around really at this point. What about you? No, it's just a healthy Dragic is the only way. Yeah, yeah. This is a different series and that's not happening. Like, it's just, it's not. And it just is a shame because I would really like to know what the series would have looked like if they had a healthy Dragic. Like that healthy Dragic, healthy Bam. It's part of, it kind of sucks for the NBA back-to-back years of the finals. Not tainted. I think tainted is too strong of a word, but um, I guess disrupted. It's probably mm. the right way to frame it, it by injuries with Clay and uh, Steph last year. Um, or was it Clay and Durant? I don't even remember now who was. Uh, it was yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And um, this year, having it be Bam and Dragic is just, it's tough, but it's a long NBA season. It's a long, the playoffs are a long gauntlet and it's just, it's unfortunately part of, part of basketball. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think there is uh, any way that they get back in the series. I think this one's over, but uh, yeah, LeBron getting another title. Uh, Good for him. Doc Rivers, the Philadelphia 76ers move fast on replacing Brett Brown. Very Uh, fast. (laughs) It it, it was fascinating that uh, Doc Rivers ended up being the guy because whoever took this job, and then you have some weird front office stuff too, which I'd like to get your opinion on of like their restructuring of the front office and certain people are going out. And then they already had a lot of chefs in the kitchen working with brand. And I, I don't know, like the Sixers are just complicated in a multitude of ways, but obviously this season was a disaster. The playoffs were a disaster. They took a huge step back without Butler in the postseason. Joel Embiid's been very mercurial. Um, Simmons obviously can't stay healthy in the back stuff's concerning, but then doc comes in and he's like, I love, I love them both. I'm getting some deja vu and I'm going to build around these two. It's a lot to unpack here, but um, what do you think? I mean, Doc wasn't my uh, 
sort of preferred target mm. for them. I thought they'd have been, I thought Ty Lu would have been the best tyre and then Mike D'Antoni second. Then I probably would have put Doc third sort of out of the main three guys um, that were being rumoured uh, for Why the job. That? I mean, I think, I mean, Doc's had some sort of chemistry issues on his teams. Like this year's Clippers were a bit of an issue. Um, they came out after the season that they had some problems in the, you know, the locker room with, you know, sort of, you know, players across the team being sort of managed fairly, you know, how PG and Kawhi were treated and, you know, some guys being unhappy. He had the issue with, you know, insisting on playing Montrez Harrell over Zubat, um, which just wasn't a good <laughs> way to go. Um, that hurt the Clippers. And I think, you know, he's he's not always been good at making playoff adjustments before. Like that was the big one this year. Um, he's not been as good at playing younger guys except when he's been forced to like he did a really good job with the 2018 19 clippers but you know in the past he's like you know really liked to have been playing guys like jamal crawford and paul pierce and that kind of thing um and i don't think he was like necessarily the best sort of x's nose offensive mind they could have got i quite like tyloo's creativity um he's, he's good at holding stars accountable you know controlling his guys um He's, I think he's more adaptable in the playoffs, you know, changing some, some of his lineups and defensive approaches and that uh, with the Cavs. Um, I think he's a bit more malleable like that. And I just thought that was sort of the best way for them to go. And it kind of looked like that would be the case for a while. Then Mike D'Antoni sort of came in the lead and then Doc got let go from the Clippers and then it very quickly, a couple of days went by and <laughs> he was the guy. Um, but I still think Doc's a good coach though. Um, I still think he can be a, bit, be a bit of an upgrade over Brett Brown. Um, I'm interested to see what he does with the offense. I think he can he can be quite creative with some of the movement and the off-ball screening and stuff he uses. Um, he'll probably increase their pick and roll a little bit, um, which will be interesting. Um, and it's good that he, you know, sort of reiterated in the press conference that Embiid and Simmons work together because they do. Like they're not the problem for the Sixers. It's basically everything around them. Um, but yeah, the next big thing is really just sorting out what moves they make in the off season because the roster is still really flawed. Like even if Doc says, you know, you have to make the best with what you've got, like Al Holford is still not a great fit. Um, Tobias Harris is still overpaid. I'm not sure he's, you know, I'm sure he's not going anywhere anyway, but they just need perimeter creation. They need shooting. They need ball handlers. Um, it was a problem for them all season. And that, you know, you really saw it in the playoffs when Ben Simmons was out. They just didn't have enough around and beat at all. So they've got a lot of changes they still need to make. So I'm interested to see what Doc can do, but it doesn't really change much if they don't fix the roster. What do you think they ultimately do here? I mean, they have some good draft picks. You know, they've got the 21st and a couple of high second rounders, so they can pick a couple of good guys there. But I think an Al Horford trade is probably the thing I'd be expecting. Um, but who's trading for Al Horford right now? <laughs> who well, wants al thing. horford and i like I al horford it's any, not yeah. even that it's like who wants that contract who in the nba wants the al horford contract right now oh i mean that's the thing i don't think anyone wants the contract it's how much the Sixers have to attach to him to get off the contract and that's when you start looking at you know did they trade the okc pick this year matisse steibel shake milton like what do they have to attach to get off al horford but i think if they do make a big move that's that's what it would be um Tobias Harris's contract is just, you know, he's got the extra year and he's getting paid more. Like, it's absolutely brutal. I think it's probably, the, you know, the worst contract in the NBA. If not, it's right near the top of the list. I don't know how Horford's not far behind, but 
he's he's the worst fit for the team. Um, he needs to come off the bench, really. It just, it just does not work at all. The offense is just brutal with Simmons, Horford and Embiid together. And I, th- I think if they don't try and prioritize moving him, if they can, then that's going to really hurt them next season. Um, I know a lot of people suggest the Buddy Hilde, Al Horford trade idea. Um, I don't really know why the Kings would be that eager to well, trade for Al I would say if Lade was still running things, it's a possibility. Exactly. But yeah, it's if you not. Were- Buddy Kings to be the Kings, then yeah, that's kind of your best bet. But now I'm not so sure about that. But yeah, and Chris Paul, I think, you know, be a really good target. But again, I, I don't know what they'd be able to offer the Thunder to necessarily make that work. Um, they're going to have to give up quite a lot to get off Hawford, like I mentioned, or Tobias Harris either way, because they're both negative assets with their contracts. So it's tough, but I think an Al Hawford trade's really got to be the priority. I just I'm looking at teams right now and I'm like, oh, could they use him? And I just, oh, it's not going to be easy to move him. <laughs> I really don't know who it is. Like I yeah. I'm looking up and down the list. Like there's really only like maybe one. Like maybe the Mavericks. You could see them mm-hmm. being a little bit like they're very thin at the five. Um, they have money to spend. Smart player. I could see them doing it. Like whoever trades him is trading him for the five. And then you look. Maybe Houston thinks about it. I I don't know. There's not not a lot. I'm sure Mike Boonholzer would love to reunite him in uh, Milwaukee, but Milwaukee is already strapped. Like I don't think that really moves the needle enough for them. Brooks been good for them. Like you just go up and down this list, and I'm like I don't know who's taking that contract. I there's just not many teams who are going to do it. No. I think Pelicans have been another suggestion, but mm. wherever you try and wherever you try and put him, yeah, like they have to attach assets. And if they're gutting the young pieces they do have and too many draft picks, like they you know, they need a they need a good package to make it worthwhile because they're still not gonna have loads of cap space to spend even if they do trade Hawford. So it's not just like a salary dump and then they have loads of flexibility afterwards. Remember so, when the, the Hawks yeah. tried to pair Dwight Howard with Al Horford? That was the pitch. <laughs> what a time. <laughs> that just feels like what Brand did last summer. And we like under-talked about it. And I have this theory on just having um, bigs run your front office. Vlade Divac obviously gave Dwayne Dedman a three-year deal when no one was offering Dwayne Dedman a three-year deal. And I like Dedman a lot, but those are guys who should be signing one-year contracts. And... um. Yeah, it was, it, it just bigs want, like, the game is very different from when Bran was playing, and I just wonder in their mind that they're just, not even in their mind, just like subconsciously, they they want to have a, a traditional power forward and a traditional mm. big next to each yeah. other. Like, I think it's a reflex. I really do. When you look at the, who runs these front offices and like how coaches who used to be bigs think, I don't know, man. I, I think there is something to that. Yeah, I mean, Bran just seems to want all the power forwards. Like, mm-hmm. I mean... I mean, Horford's just not a four. Like, no. it's really obvious. And then Tobias Harris is best at the four. You move him to a three, that's the second guy in your starting lineup who's out of position. Mm. And then we finally get around to, you know, the Sixers coming back for the bubble. And then they want to move Ben Simmons to power forward, which is really where he's best, you know, playing off another ball handler. They mm. had Shake Milton, who was their best guy for that. And then your, yeah, your four position is just loaded. And it's, yeah. I mean, I thought, there were some positives 
to when they signed Al Horford. I always thought they should have run it back. I thought, you know, re-signing Jimmy Butler should have been the priority for them. Um, he obviously deserved a five-year max and like everything he's done this season has proven that they should have just paid out for him. Um, I'd not overthought it, but, you know, in theory, Horford could do some stuff like the Sixers have always been really bad when Embiid's been off the floor. Like they did need a backup center. Like he kind of, you know, he gave a, provided sort of some pick and pop play to go with Ben Simmons. Like there were some things where you could think, oh, it can help, but it was always if he was coming off the bench or if he was just spending as little time with the starters as possible. And that's not been the case. He's declined more than I think even people thought. And it's just not worked at all. So, yeah, if they can get off him, that would be great for next season. I think they'll be trying to do that. But, yeah, like we've said, it's it's just not going to be easy with how few teams would want him or his contract and how much the Sixers might have to attach to him to get off the deal. Speaking of deals that teams are trying to get off of, uh, the Chris Paul deal in OKC, um, the Knicks already linked to CP3. It feels like they've been linked to CP3 for 10 years now. Um I still remember the photoshops of Chris Paul in New York uh, with Dan Tony and when they were pursuing um, LeBron and Dwayne Wade and just like the, the possibilities were endless and then the CP3 to Amari connection. And um, yeah, it's just, it's always been a thing. And obviously with Billy Donovan moving on from OKC, there has to be some sort of internal decision that, Hey, we're, we love that we made it this far this season. We overachieved, but uh, we're we're going full rebuild. We we need to move on from here, and I wonder what that means for Stephen Adams' future and uh, guys like that. But ultimately, Chris Paul makes a lot of money and doesn't really make a lot of sense for OKC and to write out his the remainder of his prime um, if he's still really in it. Uh, and OKC, a team that cannot win a title, um, but also another team who can't win the title, but just like having fancy names attached to MSG, the Knicks. Um, Berman of the Post wrote about this, and I think that's where it all started, but now it's starting to include Kevin Knox. And Sam Presti reportedly wants a first for Chris Paul, and I don't know that like that's not happening. What team is giving up a first-round pick for that contract and where Chris Paul's at? Like you, you, uh, Teams are just too smart now. No one's doing that. Even the Knicks, I don't think, would do that. Um, but he's reporting that Kevin Knox and Julius Randle would have to be a part of this and then my favorite, Carmelo Anthony. This is quote: Carmelo Anthony likely would look to ride back to the rescue and join Paul to be the team starting small forward or power forward. What oh, wow. year is this? <laughs> I've not seen that report. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, Chris Paul was really, really good this season. I think mm-hmm. he deserved to make the All NBA second team. Oh, um, second team. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he made it, and I think that was that was fair enough. I mean, he was really good, um, super efficient. He was great in the clutch. I mean, his playmaking was always really good. Defense solid. Um, you know, I think it'd be great for someone like the Sixers, for instance. But I just don't know why the Knicks would be that eager to get him when he's not really going to do that much if he doesn't have any good pieces around him there. Um, I don't know why they'd want to trade a bunch of their assets and they don't really have much good stuff to offer. Like I think the Thunder can get a pretty decent return for Chris Paul. Like He was so good this year. He's only got, I think, two years left, so he's making a ton of money. Um, obviously, it's way too much, but 
if you're you know a contender looking for a boost or you're trying to, to become a contender and you think you could be sort of one piece away and you think you know he can be healthy enough for the next year or two I think he's a good piece to go for but for the Knicks, I just don't really get why. And the idea of bringing Melo back <laughs> is quite a funny one. It's just, I mean, the Knicks are in real weird waters right now. They have like guys like Dennis Smith still on this roster. They have Frank Nilakina, who just will never be good enough offensively to really play any meaningful minutes. Like, it's just, they're in a very tough spot and I don't envy it. But like the weird thing is they brought in Kenny Payne, who was like a big get. And like, that was a lot to pull him from Kentucky with John Calipari. But the reason they pulled him is that they, he worked with Kevin Knox at Kentucky and that they really want to fix Kevin Knox and Knox has been really bad and they really want to work on him. He's one of their lottery picks that they're just really focused on making work. And if that's the case, then why would you include him in a trade to OKC for Chris Paul? Like what? I don't know what Leon Rose's strategy is here. Obviously, being a former CAA guy and loving Chris Paul and Carmelo from their history together, like I get that element. But um, I don't know the that doesn't make as much sense to me as the Oladipo rumor, which is so Scott Perry stayed on uh, with this front office after. Um, Steve Mills was let go after 73 years um, in the New York Knicks front office. Um, he drafted Oladipo when Oladipo was in or- uh, when they were both in Orlando, and apparently those two are close. And Oladipo obviously wants to move on from Indiana this offseason. Like that, you could sell me on if you wanted to move Knox and some pieces for Victor Oladipo. They have a bunch of picks. They have like seven or eight picks in the next four drafts like they're they're loaded with they've actually been very not nixy in the last couple years and they've stored up a lot of um draft capital and they have a lot of cap space and you know they can they can do some stuff they play things the right way i just i don't understand the idea of going after chris paul like this team's not even close to competing this team's like it's just not like they're not even close to being the thunder was last year like there's no Shea gilgis alexander on this roster there's no I mean, Mitchell Robinson's cool. He's not Steven Adams. Like, if you go up and down the list, the talent is still just not even close to what OKC was doing. So, if you bring in Chris Paul, like, this team's not playoff team still. Like, not even close. And they're still bad. And if you're Chris Paul, I guess you want to ride out with your friend and play meaningless basketball in the East down the stretch of your career. But I don't know. None of this makes sense. But if you're looking at the Oladipo aspect of it, then I'm like, yeah, I, I can see it. Like, that... You know, Old Depot, I'm a big Old Depot guy, and he didn't look great coming back from the injury, but it was a bad injury he's coming back from, and uh, we'll have to see, but I don't know. The Knicks are, it looks like we're about to go full Nixie, which is uh, going to be interesting. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, the Chris Paul thing, I just don't get it for them. If you want to try and turn, I mean, yeah, Knox is just bad, but if you want to try and turn him around, then, you know, go for it. You know, sort of play the long game and see if he can get things turned around but yeah Chris Paul just does nothing to make them a contender like the East was better than everyone was expecting this year like obviously the Sixers were a massive disappointment but the Celtics were better the Heat were better um there's plenty of good teams in the East that they don't have a remote shot against even if they have Chris Paul with a bunch of bad players and then like Mitchell Robinson um and I don't know why Chris Paul like obviously he doesn't have final say in where he goes you know he has influence but he doesn't get to choose but even still i have no idea why he'd want to spend the rest of his time with the knicks just playing with a bunch of bad guys for the next couple of years um 
Oladipo, I agree with you. I, that's much more interesting. Get someone who's a bit younger. Um, we'll give him a bit of time after the injury. I'm sure next season he can he'll look a bit better once there's a bit more time. But yeah, I see that making sense. But Chris Paul, I just think he's more he's more of a piece to put a team over the edge or sort of up to contender level rather than a bottom team trying to make like the eighth or seventh seed. Like I just don't get it. <laughs> no. All right, Tom. Well, this is where we have to to end today's podcast. Uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for making the time. Uh, what can we check out from you this week on the internet? Uh, it's mainly just my last uh, article for Liberty Ballers, I guess. Um, I'd sort of looked at Doc Rivers a bit and mostly looked back through some old film looking at how we use Blake Griffin back with the Lob City Clippers and how we can maybe use some of the same plays and actions that he used with Blake uh, for Ben Simmons. Uh, so that's on LibertyBallers.com. And then I'm on Twitter at TomWestNBA. Uh, and that's it, I'd say. All right. Well, this has been great, Tom. Uh, we'll definitely have you back on. Uh, keep up the great work, sir. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Sure. Thanks for having me on, man. All right. We're back on the Chase Thomas podcast, and I am thrilled to be joined by my favorite voice in baseball. Favorite voice. It's not even close, folks. It's Josh Nelson. Josh, greet us with that soothing voice of yours. Well, I don't know how soothing it's going to be, Chase, just because I had a cheeseburger Mm. before doing this for lunch, and then it dawned on me a cheeseburger was a bad idea. Dairy in general is not a bold move. Well, I love cheeseburgers, but it's the dairy parks. Yeah. Who doesn't? Like, I love a good cheeseburger. I might have a cheeseburger tonight, but there you go. So I don't know if you're like this, but I'm not a morning eater kind of person. And midday, I like to keep things light. The only time I ever really like eat something heavy like that is for dinner, like late at night. I can't. I'm never hungry. Like my breakfast, I like doing coffee and uh that and some more coffee and then by lunch i might have a sandwich or something but like i just whenever i used to work with people who would just get like zaxby's or like some really good fried food for lunch i'm like do you just not need to go into a coma for that like how are you productive for the rest of your day when you (laughs) eat something like that for lunch because i would just want to go lie down i don't understand how people do it so that is why i made uh the, the the point about uh you having a cheeseburger for lunch Got it. See, we don't have Zaxby's in mm. Chicago. Raising Canes? No Raising Canes either. Mm. What we do got, you have? What is the best chicken spot or equivalent for that? Well, we got Chick-fil-A's and we mm. got Popeye's. Okay. Are you a Chick-fil-A love- sandwich person or a Popeye sandwich person? Popeye's. Really? Yeah, I love the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Interesting. Okay. Um, see, I'm from the South where there is a Chick-fil-A like every... There's a Chick-fil-A and there's a Waffle House every... 30 to 50 yards from where i live at all times it's it's kind of nice but um yeah that is uh that is the way things work down here um chicago so john and i john taylor um we do this pod every week covering baseball and we both were in on the white Sox coming this year and we had different rationale as to why that was we thought that their rebuild was going better than most teams because every team like has this idea in their head. They it, like, it seems like every MLB team. That's not like a big market team rebuilds the exact same way. 
And a lot of teams talk themselves into their pipeline and everything else, but like pipelines are pipelines and you really have no idea. Austin Riley looked like he was going to be great in AAA, mm-hmm. just mashing. And then guess what? He gets to the majors and he sucks. Like Austin Riley sucks. And that is just a year and a half of data now. He is not a hitter. He cannot hit. It is not going to happen. He is going to bounce around the league as like a third baseman who can play DH every now and then. He's going the Matt Adams route at third base. Like that is that is what's happening. Um, but until they get to the major leagues, we just don't know. We don't know what Byron Buxton's going to be until he's in the major leagues. We don't know what Lewis Brinson's going to be until he's in the major leagues. But the White Sox, guess what? Those guys are working out. Like all your young guys are kind of hitting. Giolito's figured it out. Moncada, a little down year, 97 WRC plus. I want to ask you about that in a second. Luis mm-hmm. Bear looks good. Like you have guys now, Tim Anderson, great. You, your second base position looks like it's filled out. Maybe like you look up and down this group outfield looks set. Most of the infield looks set. The rebuild's actually gone well, but I feel like it's a flip of the coin of just whether or not you're going to get lucky with your young guys and your young core, because every team is doing this and guess what? Not every team can nail it. And you just don't know until they're at the major leagues. And I was like, I don't know. I just feel good about the White Sox core. Like, I think they're going to be good. Yeah, I think the new foundation for the Chicago White Sox is strong. Uh, Lucas Giolito becoming the ace and stepping up big time and having an outstanding performance in game one of the wild card series against the Oakland Athletics uh, was great to see. And he also threw a no hitter. I get it. It's the Pittsburgh Pirates, but still throwing a no hitter in Major League Baseball is an incredible achievement. Especially it's a very difficult feat. Yeah, especially this year when we weren't really expecting pitchers to go deep into games. Uh, yet we got a chance to see Lucas Giolito uh, spinning no hitter this year. Uh, and then you, you, some of the names you mentioned, like Tim Anderson, terrific. Uh, Aloy Jimenez, uh, terrific offensively. Luis Robert uh, had a great start. September was not kind to him, and he's probably going to lose rookie of the year to Kyle Lewis, the Seattle Mariners. Um, but at least he ended up where his weighted runs created plus is right around average at 100. Uh, but you could see when he was excelling just how enormous this talent could really be for the Chicago White Sox. And he might be the best of all the position players that they have called up since they have done the rebuild. And then you you sprinkle in the veterans. I mean, Jose Abreu's got a real good shot of winning American League MVP this year. And uh, yes, Monty Grandal, I still think that was a success for the White Sox in signing him. And uh, Dallas Keuchel also performed really well for the White Sox. So in 2020, you had this combination of youth and veterans. And I think they're going to mostly have that going into 2021. The, the question, though, really is for the White Sox. Okay, you have built a team that in a 162-game season probably wins 85 games. Who else is going to step up to help take charge and help solidify positions and be above average to all-star caliber major leaguers so you go from an 85-win team to a 95-win team? And if it's not internally that you could find those players who externally, either through trades or free agency, can the White Sox add so they can continue this momentum of making the postseason in 2020 and try to win the American League Central in 2021? What do you think ultimately happens, though? How do you think they 
address all of that this offseason? Do what like when you think about how they've operated the last two and based on what this season ultimately turned into for them, what do you think their game plan is? I think they're gonna try to make one trade and then they're gonna assign a couple more veterans, probably on the starting pitching front. And do they bring back uh, Keiko. Well, yeah, I mean, Keiko's under contract until 2022. Okay. And there is a club option for 2023 for Keiko. So Keiko is most definitely in the mix. We'll start with the starting pitching. You know who could have used Dallas Keiko this year? Atlanta. Atlanta could have used Dallas Keiko (laughs) this year. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they could have. Uh, Unfortunately, the Cole Hamill signing didn't work out, so I apologize. It's amazing that the let's sign veterans to one-year deals who are well past their prime um, after a couple couple months into the season is not paying off for the, the Braves anymore. It's hard to believe that one of those finally didn't work out. Well, it it hasn't worked out for the White Sox either. I mean, they signed Gio Gonzalez to a one-year deal, Mm. and he was either hurt because of shoulder issues or when he did pitch, he wasn't all that effective, and then he got hurt again at the end of the season and couldn't help out the White Sox in the postseason at all. It would be really interesting to see what happens with him. But back to you as far as your question, how do the White Sox jump 10 games in the win column? Mm Mm-hmm. I I think that there are some players that I just don't know if it's a lack of trust that the White Sox have or they're not going to get playing time with the White Sox, but they're still young enough and there should be some intrigue from other teams, especially rebuilding teams, that we can package these guys together and try to add more major league talent. And a couple of those players are Ronaldo Lopez, starting pitcher for the White Sox, and Zach Collins, a left-handed catcher who was the number 10 pick overall in the 2016 Major League Baseball draft. I just don't see a path for either of them, where, especially for Collins, where they're going to become starters. You know, Ronaldo Lopez, I think, has been passed by, as far as in the starting rotation, by Dane Dunning. Dylan Cease, and uh, when he returns to spring training, Michael Kopech. So what does Lopez do? I mean, you don't have a starting spot with the White Sox, so you're going to have to learn how to pitch out of the bullpen. But if you don't think you're a bullpen pitcher or that's not the rule for you, you're kind of stuck. I mean, the other option is you can get optioned down to Charlotte, the AAA affiliate for now, uh, for the Chicago White Sox before they uh, change everything in the minor leagues. So that's Ronaldo Lopez's situation. Zach Collins, I, I have been saying this for years, since 2017. He's not a catcher, in my opinion. He should have been getting a lot more playing time at first base than he was getting with the White Sox. But the White Sox really wanted to develop his catching skills and see if he can develop into a catcher and be their everyday catcher. Well, they signed Yasmani Grandal for a reason. And that reason is they don't trust Zach Collins to become a starting catcher on the major league level. So the best scenario for Zach Collins with the White Sox next year, Chase, is becoming the backup catcher and the backup catcher that might get some plate appearances as the DH. He might play half the season, but they're still young enough, both Lopez and Collins. And if you package them together and you send them to a rebuilding team, let's use the Pittsburgh Pirates, for example. Everybody knows the Pirates are rebuilding. If you send them to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's number one goal in 2021 is continue player development Mm. and see of the players that they currently have on hand who is worth keeping around. 
So they're going to be looking for players that have control. They're going to try to lose as many games as possible because the Pirates could really use another top five draft pick after the 2021 season. Well, here you go, Pittsburgh. You could find out if Zach Collins is going to be an everyday catcher. Uh, and you could stick him at the catch, catching spot. And Ronaldo Lopez, you could have Lopez make 30 starts for you and see if you can fix Lopez and get him to be more consistent. Because uh, uh, Lopez did have some uh, good starts for the White Sox in September. He actually uh, outdueled Kenta Maeda uh, when the White Sox clinched their postseason spot against the Minnesota Twins, which was uh, pretty impressive. So the Pirates could take on, I'm just using them as an example, players like Zach Collins and Ronaldo Lopez, and the White Sox can take whomever Pittsburgh wants to shed off their payroll uh, to save some more cash and build profit uh, in unprecedented times. Uh, And the White Sox can add that way. And on top of doing trades like that, uh, the White Sox can spend some cash in free agency uh, mid-tier guys, I don't think they're going to go after players like Trevor Bauer or JT Real Muto because they'll just be too expensive. Uh, but but there will be other targets. Thing. Like, that's more of what the White Sox want, right? Like, Bauer's only doing one-year deals until he's done. Well, I, I'll i try to keep this clean, but I mm-hmm. think Bauer's full of crap. Okay. I think he may say, Do you want to yeah. get put up in uh, Bauer's Vortex? Do you really want that smoke right yeah, now, I, Josh Yeah, that, that's, 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 that's fine because that's not what teams are going to offer him. Mm. If they're going to take the time in pursuing Trevor Bauer, it's not going to be one year deal. What he may get is like a five or six year deal, but he could get like a player option to opt out like after two years, Mm. right? It's got to be worthwhile for these teams to pursue Trevor Bauer and the talent that he has, they would like to keep him around for a while so yeah, he I could almost s- ruined my day a week ago. I he uh, he was Red Sox. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I I don't think Bauer is going to sign for a one year deal. But the mm. White Sox are not known to give player opt outs. They are known for club options. That's their way of doing business. Uh, so while even the White Sox could show interest in Trevor Bauer, I ultimately don't think, as far as personalities and the way the White Sox do business, it's going to be a fit. So I, I don't know where Bauer goes at this moment, I, but he's not signing for one year. They, these deals are just going to be too enticing for him. But I think he'll demand a player opt out after year two or year three of the contract, just in case if he changes his mind. Interesting. I, I'm fascinated to see what happens there. Um, Tim Anderson's batting average balls in play, almost 400. Do you think this keeps up into next year? Do you think Tim Anderson is, this is who he's going to be for the next couple of years as a hitter? Yeah. You know, last year there was a lot of people that said that it was a fluke. And then we watched him perform in 2020 where mm. he may get MVP votes as well. Yeah. And then I saw him in that wild card series against Oakland and chase. He has reached a level in development that I did not think was possible when the white Sox selected him in the first round. And I know people keep hammering the fact, well, his BABIP is so high. Well, it's going to continue to be high because he does a really good job of hitting line drives. He hits the ball hard, and he now understands what which pitches that he could spray all over the outfield. And with his speed, he's going to be able to get those infield hits. So, yeah, I would be expecting Tim Anderson to have a high BABIP moving forward. 
if he has like a 360 BAP up, some people will still say that's still a high BAP up. And for Tim Anderson, I think that would be a low BAP up at this moment for him moving forward. Though the one thing for Anderson, we start we started seeing a little bit more of this, is that he is going to have to figure out his power stroke against right-handers because I wonder if teams are going to defend him differently in 2021, maybe some more shifting when there's a right-handed starter uh, for Anderson to try to take away some of those singles that he gets, spraying it into shallow center field or uh, dumping it into right field. And it would be nice that he can demonstrate a little bit more power because he did do it against Trevor Bauer. He took Bauer out to deep center field. So I know it's there, but Anderson's focus was do whatever I need to, to get on base because I got the red hot Jose Abreu batting behind me. And my job as the leadoff hitter is to get on base and he's never going to walk at a high rate, never going to walk at a high rate. So the only way that Anderson's going to reach on base is continuing to put the ball in play. And as long as he continues to put the ball in play and reduce his strikeout rate, yeah, his BABIP is always going to be high. And I don't know what other argument or what everyone else is going to point to 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 try and discredit Anderson's rise, especially offensively, because the dude continues to rake. And my Lord, do not have a left-handed pitcher face Tim Anderson because that's just, that's just another entirely different beast of a hitter where it's just video game numbers. I think at one point he was batting 500 and had like six home runs and like 20 at bats against lefties. Like it was ridiculous. Like no one should have a left-handed pitcher, even a reliever face Tim Anderson because he's going to make you pay. Uh, And it's just been a remarkable transformation Uh, He's still working on as far as his defense, but for sure now, Tim Anderson is a top 10 shortstop in all of Major League Baseball, and I wouldn't be surprised when MLB Network does its top 100 or top 10 lists for the upcoming 2021 season if they consider or other pundits consider Tim Anderson a top five shortstop in Major League Baseball. And that, again, is just tremendous progress where Anderson has been as far as a player since joining the White Sox in 2016. Hmm. I I'm happy to hear it because uh, Tim Anderson is good for baseball. Um, while he's had a great development and a great run, Mancata, like I mentioned previously, had a 97 WRC plus. It seemed like something was ailing him this year. I think a lot of people were expecting a breakout year for him. What is going on with Mancata, and are you concerned long term? There is a bit of a concern because he did test positive for COVID. Before the season began, he missed all of the summer camp or spring training 2.0 because he couldn't taste anything. He, he lost his sense of smell as well. So here's a player uh, in prime physical shape telling the media before the season started, yeah, I had COVID. It was a mild case. I just couldn't smell or taste anything. Come on, Johan. That's not a mild case, man. Yeah. And uh, sure enough – after the month of August, when he just appeared to be sluggish, I mean, physically appeared to be sluggish, he finally admitted to the media that he his body was not recovering like it had been in past years. And manager Rick Renteria tried to give him as many days off as possible, a day or back-to-back days off to allow Mankata to recover, to allow the White Sox training staff to figure out on how they can keep Makata on the field and what treatments would work so he can have better recovery from game to game. 
And I would watch him leg out a triple against the Cleveland Indians in that final week of the season. And then he goes to the bench and he looks like I do if I hop on the Peloton for 30 minutes. And I'm a fat guy. So if I'm on the Peloton, I'm sweating <laughs> my face off. And I look like Yoan Makata, who just legged out a triple. But again, Yoan Makata's a professional athlete. I've met Yoan Makata. He's built like an underarm mannequin. He should not be that tired. But that's the impact coronavirus had on Yoan Makata was that he may call it mild, but he was still dealing with the symptoms and the effects of coronavirus throughout the entire season. And he just his body really never allowed him to recover and it impacted as far as his power. And it's somewhat surprising that he had a 97 weighted runs creative plus trying to muster all that he could, especially at the end of the 2020 season. Mankata is one of those players that really needs this offseason to just rest. Like it would not be beneficial for him, in my opinion, to be posting Instagram videos of doing hardcore weightlifting. He really needs to take it easy and relax and allow his body to recover to see what type of player the White Sox have on their hands in 2021 because they signed him to a new contract chase after the 2019 season thinking this is a player that's going to be five plus war. He's going to be one of the best third basemen in all major league baseball. He's going to be an all-star and he's got a chance to get MVP votes. They did not sign him to that contract to be a 97 weighted runs created plus type of player. So Mikata for himself and for the team really needs to take this off season seriously trying to relax. I know that could be contradictory, uh, but hopefully if he does relax and he allows his body to heal and recover, that he can go back to his 2019 form this upcoming spring training. Hmm. Do you feel good about the White Sox pitching staff going forward? I feel good about Lucas Giolito. I understand what Dallas Keuchel can bring to the team, and it's it's limited, but it can be effective. Don't you dare. I would kill to have a limited but effective Dallas Keuchel in this Braves rotation right now, sir. Yeah, I understand. Uh, let's talk about Milton, Georgia native Dylan Cease. Mm. I am selling some of my Dylan Cease stock. Not all of my Does stock. Does it cease to exist? Well, it's not cease to exist. Again, mm. I'm, I'm holding on to some of it. It's hard to sell off completely a pitcher who throws 97 and 99 with a fastball and has elite spin on his slider. The problem is, is that Dylan Cease has 40 grade command mm. and he cannot hit his target. God, it was getting really frustrated watching him pitch. Like, sure, he'll pick up strikes and he'll pick up swing strikes, but either James McCann or Yasmani Grandel behind the plate, their their gloves are moving all over the place back there. And he, he's just really missing as far as his target pitch. Fastball inside, ends up on the outside corner. Slider away, ends up low in the middle. Like, he just could not pinpoint any of his pitches this season. And I'm not sure of the layoff from spring training uh, to summer camp or spring training 2.0 after all those months missed if it impacted him. But he's going to have to figure it out because – the White Sox really need him to become a starting pitcher because physically there was nothing ailing him. So he could be someone the White Sox can count on for maybe 30 starts, 150 plus innings in 2021. 
And there's still the hope that he could put it all together and maybe he could have a big leap forward in his development like Lucas Giolito and become one of those top-end starting pitchers that the White Sox were hoping for when they traded for him along with Aloy Jimenez in the Jose Catana deal to the Chicago Cubs. But if he's going to have 40-grade command, Chase, I mean, that's bullpen arm all the way. And it, this is a really pivotal year for Dylan Cease coming into 2021. I think the White Sox are not going to give up on him. They're going to give him every opportunity to prove that he is a starting pitcher. But he's really got to help. He's got to work on his command because another pitcher that the White Sox had, Carson Fulmer, also had 60 grade stuff, but he had 40 grade command. And now he's hopping back and back and forth between Baltimore and Pittsburgh as both of those teams keep claiming him on the wa- waiver wire to try to sneak him through uh, so they can have a, a former first-round pick on their AAA pitching staff. Uh, but again, this is going to be a pivotal year in 2021 for Dylan Cease. Uh, I already talked about Lopez. Dane Dunning was impressive. He did not pitch at all in 2019 because of Tommy John surgery. And Dunning, he's someone that's got 50-grade command, like average fastball, average breaking stuff. But he's got 50-grade command with that 50-grade stuff. And that's the difference between Dunning and Cease is that Dunning could throw these pitches for strikes. And Dunning was able to rack up a lot more strikeouts than Dylan Cease was per start. And it doesn't make any sense because Dunning's a 92-93 fastball guy, and he's got a couple of fastballs, a four-seamer and a sinker, and then he spins his curveball that doesn't have anywhere near the same type of – spin rate as Dylan Cease has with his slider, but Dunning's been more effective. Why? Well, Dunning can live in the strike zone. He can hit his target when it's called for, but with from the catcher behind a home plate where Cease cannot. And uh, that keeps hitters off their toes when you're able to do that for any pitcher. So I have a little bit more confidence that Dane Dunning could stick as a starter. But again, 2020 was supposed to be more of a rehab for him. And Dunning rehabbed in the major league level, uh, making starts for the Chicago White Sox. So that was pretty impressive. And Michael Kopech, we'll see. I think he's got all the talent in the world. I am a bit concerned as far as where he is and what he wants to do as a baseball player going to 2021. And uh, I think those questions are going to be answered in spring training. And if he comes out focused and ready to go, uh, then I think he just needed the break in 2020 and just didn't feel comfortable performing in a pandemic type of season. And I can't blame him, Uh, but there's a lot of off the field stuff that could be a little bit distracting and it's not anything new. He kind of keeps getting into these same situations, uh, chasing the celebrity girls. Uh, But we'll see where his focus is at because he's got all the talent in the world. But as we know in all sports, Chase, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you do not have prime focus, it, it goes for naught. And it, we'll, we'll see what Kopech could bring to the White Sox in 2021. If I was advising Rick Hahn, I would not count on Michael Kopech being part of the White Sox starting rotation to start the 2021 season. Just because he hasn't pitched in a game since 2018 and we don't know what he has yeah um when you think about jose abreu's season we'll wrap up here um it was just it's so interesting to me because he was just someone that 
he was just like a leftover piece for the last couple of years. Like he's just kind of the forgotten veteran. And now he's like this veteran clubhouse leader. And not only is he just like the, the veteran leader, but he's also still like a veteran star. And it seemed like we had just written that off as a possibility a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. Jose Abreu, like who looked like White Sox fans wanted him out of there, part of the rebuild and to see what you could get for him. No, he's now an integral part of this core and where they go in the next couple of years. Uh, what, what do you make of Abreu's just drastic shift and who he is as a player? I think for Jose Abreu, if he wins the American League MVP along with Freddie Freeman, if he wins it in the National League MVP, that would be a bit satisfying for me in a story perspective because Freeman played for some really bad Atlanta Braves teams. And there is questions of why is Freeman here? <laughs> like he's yeah. too good. Uh, the Braves should move him. But he stuck with the Braves and the Braves stuck with him. And it's a very similar situation with the White Sox and Jose Abreu. In the last season when Abreu entered free agency, it was it was well known by White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf that he wanted Jose Abreu back. And he made that publicly known in the media. So that put Rick Hahn in a really tight spot. Like, I have no choice. My boss wants you back on the team. So what do you want? And it was a three-year, $50 million deal. And there was no chance, no chance Jose Abreu was going to get that deal in free agency. And at the time, we all thought, well, the White Sox really overpaid. But they overpaid because this was the one player that we knew that the boss, Jerry Reinsdorf, wanted to spend money for. And it didn't stop the White Sox from spending money elsewhere. Uh, Again, they brought in Yasmani Grandal and Dallas Keuchel. They had a very good offseason last year on the free agency market. And then Abreu has this season. And it started off not all that great. Jose Abreu started 2023 for 21 with runners in scoring position. And yet he led all of Major League Baseball in RBIs. And everyone points to, wow, 60 RBIs in 60 games. Uh, Abreu could have had 70 RBIs uh, if he was performing the way that he did uh, in the first week of the season. He had plenty of opportunities to drive in runs, and he was just failing for the White Sox. And then, of course, he had that amazing week where he had six home runs and just tortured the Chicago Cubs pitching staff at Wrigley Field, um, which was very fun to watch. And, yeah, he's just been – he's always been – the heart and soul of this White Sox team since he's joined the team back in 2014. And it's nice to see him continue to be that leader, but performing at a really high level. And I look through the stat cast data and I am always looking for clues if this player is having a difficult time against breaking pitches or if the eyes are starting to give up or if the body is starting to break down, like Edwin Carnacion can't hit anything faster than 93 miles per hour now. And I look at Abreu, no problem with breaking stuff, and he's getting better against velocity. And I don't think, again, for those that are listening, thinking that, well, Abreu will be a fluke kill. He won't be performing at this level in 2021. I'm not so sure. I wonder if Abreu is catching a second win that could carry him through 2021 and 2022 to help be a to help solidify the White Sox lineup as the number three or number four hitter to continue to be that leader, especially that the Latino players gravitate to. And he's improved tremendously on his defense in first base that 
There's no need to rush Andrew Vaughn at this moment for the Chicago White Sox to the major league level because Abreu is performing at a really high level. Uh, and it would be, be nice to have because the White Sox needed as many great players as possible. And if Abreu could continue his performance in 2022, 2021, and 2022, again, it just helps the White Sox get to that next level of becoming a 95-win team where they could go out and win the American League Central and do some damage in the postseason. There you go. Josh Nelson, this has been a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for making the time today. What can we check out from you at Sox Machine and anywhere else? Yeah, at SoxMachine.com around October 19th, we're going to have our 2021 offseason plan project. So if you like to play along, we're going to put you as the White Sox general manager, which you're going to have to make all of the decisions. Uh, I'm sorry? I accept. You accept. Okay. So the the way the rules work is that you have to go through the tender, non-tender, which free agents you're going to re-sign. And then you make your proposals as far as what players you want to add through trades and who you're trading away and who you are signing in free agency to build your 26-man roster for the 2021 season. So again, that's going to be launched around October 19th on SoxMachine.com. It's always a fun time. There's always there's like 100-plus plans that are submitted onto the website for those wanting to pretend to be a general manager and looking at the White Sox situation. So uh, actually, we had over 225 last year, quickly looking at the number. Uh, so it's always a fun time. So if you're interested and like to play along around October 19th, check out SoxMachine.com. We should have that off-season plan project started. All right. Well, go do that. Josh, thank you so much, as always, for the time. Uh, take care of that voice. <laughs> I'll do try. you're doing. Less Keep dairy. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, less dairy. Less cheeseburgers for lunch. Um, all right, my friend. I will talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks, Chase. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Did you like what you heard? Heard? Did you like what you heard? I think is what I'm trying to say, right? That's what I'm trying to say. That's the correct English. Um, Then guess what? Here's what you do. You go to Apple. You leave it five stars. You leave a review. You let people know why they should listen to this show. You go to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. You become a member. $5 a month. Go do it. You can do more. I'm not going to say no. Um... Go to chasemuspodcast.com, read all my stuff, chasemuspodcast slash page hyphen 11. It's great stuff. Writing every day, doing the pod every day. Support the best independent sports podcast today. No one's doing what I'm doing. Nobody can touch me. Let's keep this thing moving. Let's keep the lights on. Let's keep getting after it. I'm hyped up. Follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas. Like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Thank you all for your support as this show continues to grow. We'll be back, yeah, tomorrow. Because guess what? This show is daily, and it's all thanks to you guys. Talk to you soon. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.